Well, good morning. I want to just read something. Um, this is my Father's Day message. It'll take about 30 seconds. No. The, the message this morning is not particularly directed towards fathers, but I do want to recognize fathers this morning. And the passage today can most certainly be applied to our parenting and indeed is in Scripture as we look at finding the balance between grace and truth, between speaking the truth in love. And as believers, and especially as parents, that's a difficult thing to do. So we'll examine that. But I wanted to read this um, on one of the, that I received on one of my apps this morning, just thanking the Lord for fathers and for godly men. To the dads who cared during hard times and cheered for us in the good ones. To the men who showed us what it means to work hard and show up consistently. To the father figures who offered us timely advice and practical support. To the men who continue to support, encourage, and inspire us, thank you for showing us what it looks like to be a godly dad. You are seen, you are called, you are valued, you are loved. This has been a um, difficult Father's Day for me because this is the first Father's Day in my life that I have not had a father to honor. My dad passed away last year, and uh, it's been hard. I've, I'm feeling the loss. I did, I'm, a, I'm a grown man, and I, you, you never know when things are going to hit you. But uh, it, Father's Day was coming up, and I had it in my head. I have to go to the store and get a Father's Day card. And then I realized I didn't. So appreciate your dads, love on your dads, respect your dads. May God bless the fathers in here this morning. And dads, I pray you'd pay particular attention to this message. And it is, uh, Paul's really addressing the church, but it's something that every individual needs to wrestle with. So we have turned back to our study of Second. Corinthians, And today we venture into new territory. We have not studied this passage yet. And the Apostle Paul is writing this second letter to the saints. Mothers, fathers, kids, new believers, mature believers who reside in Corinth. And we find two crucial characteristics that we as individuals, that we as a church need to wrestle with, to discern constantly go back and forth to find the balance between relating to one another in truth and grace or love and truth. It's that balance of how hard do I come down on disobedience or sin as opposed to how much compassion do I offer? Where where do I draw the line? And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is wrestling with or speaking into with the church. You don't want to be too permissive. If you're too permissive over here, you're creating a bigger mess. And yet, if we're too rigid over here, we're also creating a bigger mess. So let's see what we can learn from the Apostle Paul. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 5 through 11. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure... Not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, 
This punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we may, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So I want to look at three things in this passage this morning. The pain of sin, the power of forgiveness, and then, lack of better terms, sticking with the P's, the prowess of Satan or the prowess of the enemy. So Paul is addressing these three things in this passage, and it's a real life situation. And the first thing I want to notice, and he recognizes, is When we fail, when we transgress, when we sin, it causes pain. It causes pain in concentric circles, horizontally, vertically. What has happened in this situation? Somebody in the church has sinned. A brother has sinned against God. He's sinned against man. Uh, We don't know exactly what he's done. A lot of the people, the scholars say, well, it's obviously the guy that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians who was sleeping with his stepmother and bragging about it. That's not good for church health. And others say, that's probably one of those guys who was confronting the Apostle Paul regarding his apostolic authority. Who are you to speak for God? Why should we listen to anything you say? And there were plenty of those people in this church. And others say, well, it's probably a a theological issue that that occurred that he's addressing. Uh, We don't know. I'm not comfortable with landing on anything right there. And we don't know exactly which sin or person he is confronting. And actually, I think that's on purpose. I think this is Paul showing compassion. It's Paul showing sensitivity. He's writing a letter to the church. This is going to be read to all the people. And we don't even know as outsiders exactly who he's addressing or all the juicy details. He certainly could have included those in this letter, but he didn't. And he didn't because of pastoral care. He didn't because in his estimation, the person that has sinned has already reconciled with God and man. He's done what he could do. He has repented. And so rather than dragging him through the mud again uh, or, or reminding everybody of the details of the sin, calling him out by name. Now, the apostle calls people out by name. Read any of the books. If, it, if it's necessary, he will call. I'm glad I didn't live in that day. He will call you out by name. But he does not do that in this letter. Because that's not his goal. That's already been dealt with. He's already been called out. Now the goal and our goal of any situation like this is healing. It's bringing back together what was broken and torn apart. That's his aim. That's what he's focused on. So he exercises great pastoral care and sensitivity. You know, in pastoral care, leaders, Bible study leaders, any kind of ministry leader... We're always faced with this kind of discernment. Uh, As parents, we're faced with this kind of 
discernment. Where do we lean? How much do we rag on people that have failed us? How long do we draw it out? Well, it requires a, a, a sensitivity and a focus on the flock. It wasn't good for this person to be called out. It wasn't good for Paul to set an example of somebody who was too rigid to the rest of the saints. Though sin, as you know, must be confronted. It absolutely must be confronted. If necessary, discipline administered. But the purpose is not to knock somebody out so they can never get back up. The purpose is that we learn not to sin against the Lord and then be warmly embraced and taken back in. Just like in football, you have it's a rough game. Uh, you have necessary roughness. If, if you're too dainty, you're going to lose. But there's also such a thing as unnecessary roughness. And that can happen in a church. There's necessary roughness in the, in the sense of tough love. And then there's the unnecessary roughness where you kick him while he's down and get some cheap shots in there just for vengeance or because... Well, everybody, God forgiven him, but I haven't forgiven him yet. I still have pain I want to take out on this person. This stuff happens in real life. So it's, it's difficult. There's no need to say more than needs to be said. And you don't want to just ignore it and be too permissive. So I think about this passage. And I've been pastoring for 18 years now. And... Uh, even before I pastored, this church has gone through certain situations where we have made, we've had to make some public statements. We've had to address situations in the church. They were of the magnitude where it was healthier for the church to know something rather than just letting everybody draw their own conclusions. That's always a dangerous thing. And you always got to figure out, well, what, when is that time? And it's, it's hard. Now, there's been people that have sinned in this church. There's been people that have just left the church or decided they no longer wanted to be under our authority. And uh, people who've wanted to just kind of do things their own way. Sometimes people go astray. Uh, they know what's best or so forth. Or just, I just want to go to another church. And we have faced these times where we've had to think about how do you explain, how do you shepherd the flock? But I want you to know that when we, we go through these hard decisions, that our goal is restoration. Our aim is healing. Our aim is that the person and the church at the same time, the result would be to glorify God. Now, with that aim in mind, often what we, we, uh, you need to know is that when public statements have been made, we do not tell you everything we know. We make decisions based on what we know, and we're not perfect. Be the first to admit that. But we try to do what's right. But what you need to know is when we, when we weigh through the facts and so forth, you don't always hear all the details. Why? Because they're not necessary. Because some things might ruin the dignity of the individual where it puts them down so much that, there's, that it will take them forever to get back up in their service to the Lord. Uh, we're not God, but we try to make these kind of decisions. Now, as a result of that, we have gone public with a few things, made some statements from the pulpit. And sometimes it, uh, there's people in the congregation don't always agree with where we land on decisions. 
And we have to face that because it's more important. Restoration and reconciliation is more important than us being right. And there, I have been tempted. Honestly, I've been tempted to prove that we're right in these situations and reveal details that would seal the case, that, but they don't need to be revealed. It's not what's the best for God or that person because God cares for that person's soul and he cares for our souls. So it's, the, it's walking that razor edge there um, in, in kingdom work. Also, as a result, I've had people come to me, perhaps others, other leaders, months later, maybe even years later, and say, now I get it. Now I see why you made the decision you did. Now I see the fruit from the church. I see the fruit from the individuals. And, and I get it. Back then I was a little upset. Or I didn't disagree. But now I get it. So this is real stuff. And this, ha- this happens in homes too. Because not just church families, but families. Where we got to wrestle through this teaching of confronting sin and yet... Forgiving sin, and it is hard. But what we know clearly in this passage is that sin causes pain. If you read this, this is oozing with brokenness, broken relationship. Whatever this guy did, if he was married, he caused pain in his wife's life. Whatever he did, if he had kids, he caused pain in his kid's life. He caused pain with his friends. If he had friends, he caused pain in his church. It was a rippling effect. And that's one of the reasons that sin needs to be addressed and confronted. You you just can't, for the well-being of that person and everybody around, give sin boldness as if there's no consequences to it. And we were created in a world with a God of decisions. It's a cause and effect world. And that's good and bad. It's, it's good in the sense that everything we do for God has a positive effect for good. Absolutely everything. The Lord says, your labor, in, your labor for the Lord is not in vain. It's not empty. It's not meaningless. Every thought that goes into any kind of preparation. Maybe you came here this morning thinking about, what, how, who can I encourage this morning? What's one thing I can do for the body of Christ? Hand out bulletins. Say a word. A a, a sweet smile and demeanor brings goodness. I would much rather meet somebody with a sweet smile on their face on a sunny morning than some grumpy pants. we, We ping off of each other in our community. And every little sweet thing. I've had... The people this morning that wish me a happy Father's Day uh, from the youngest to the oldest. Those things matter. It's recognition. So everything we do makes a mark. It's the throwing the stone in the pond. It's the ripple effect. But also what we do bad. Unfortunately, it affects everybody. This teaching in our world today that we can live private personal lives and what I do in private doesn't affect you. That is not true. We don't live in that kind of world. It's just, it's, it's not true. There are, there are consequences to everything we do. They might not be direct, but there are consequences to everything we do. 
So when one person does good or when we, we do good, in some way we, were, we are building up goodness and we all benefit. When one of us does bad, in some way it's affecting you know, the powers, the spiritual powers in the world, and we also suffer from that because we are a people of connectedness and community. Love your neighbor as yourself. Greatest, second greatest command ever given to all humanity of all time. So that's how interconnected we are. So it's sobering to know that not only the good spreads, but our bad sin causes pain. But that's not the final word. I mean, that, that's the good news of the gospel because we're all sinners but that's not the final word. We all fail. We all blow it. Sometimes we beat ourselves up more than others beat us up for our failures. That's not the final word. We also live in a world under the umbrella of a God who's merciful and forgiving. And so the apostle under the inspiration of God is saying, forgive this brother. Look into your heart. Consider who you are. Consider what Christ has done for you. Look at verse 6. Look at the power of forgiveness. For such a one, this punishment by the uh, majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive and so forth. So we, we get this impression. Obviously, the sinner, he's, he's sinned and he has been confronted in, in some kind of public way. The church knows about it. So this was made public, perhaps some kind of church discipline. Perhaps he was removed from the, the fellowship of the church. There's some distance created because of his sin until he repented. So he was rebuked. And Paul is wondering, perhaps, or sensing, but he's repented. He has done what he can do within his power to make it right. But there's still a coldness in the church. There's still a resistance. They're not quite ready, perhaps, to bring him back in. And it's interesting that Paul would address the congregation in this way. And this is a part of church life. Perhaps there's somebody in here that has offended you and you have had to work through what does it look like? I, can I still go to church with this person? And a lot of times people get offended and they just leave the church. It's easier. I just leave the church. I can't be in their presence. Now, there might be warrant for that depending on the, the, the degree of sin. But in essence... Paul is, is warning them, cautioning them against excessive coldness. And he's saying, guys, bring them in for a group hug. He, he's done. His, he's suffered through his discipline. He's been humiliated, shamed by his sin. He's owned up to it. Bring him in. Give him a place at the table. You once were the prosecutor. That was right to play that role. But now you're the defender Comfort him, support him. It's not about I win, I was right, and you lose. You know, the Romans in that culture, it was their cultural way about them that if you showed weakness or 
or you were defeated, that they would, it, it was a, 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 a admirable thing for you to keep a person down, to keep them beaten down, to, to keep them defeated. Excessive power in that sense. So this is a countercultural thing here. Truth and grace. If you're unrepentant, you stay outside the camp. But when you are repentant, bring him back in. Turn and forgive. Comfort. Go. Make your peace. Let this person know. Don't leave them suffering, not knowing what you think about them. Let them know. We've, we've dealt with this. Grant him pardon. It's interesting to me, <clears throat> as familiar we are as in, in a world of brokenness and sin, that we still, the world still doesn't really know what to do with people who have blown it. Still just doesn't know that balance between is there ever a place for restoration and to what degree or what level. And we, st- we still see this in, I mean, cancel culture? What's that? Man, that's get them for something that they did like 39 years ago. They slipped up and said this. Let's pile on top of them. Put them down so they can never be in the limelight again. And yet the Bible's clear. Those that have sinned who repent have a place in the kingdom of God, which means they have a place in the church. I was uh, went home from Maryland to Maryland, I think it was last week, for my mom's 94th birthday. And um, <clears throat> I always like getting together with my brothers and sisters. We have a big family and I don't live there anymore, so my memories go with me. But they're still in the neighborhood, and they run into people, and so they're always reminding me of things. And we were just talking about families in the community. And I was reminded of one, one young man that was back in this, uh, during the Vietnam War. And um, he didn't want to go into the war, this young man. And so he, uh, he, he got drafted, but he went AWOL. And his father, he, had a, he came from a big family as well, right there in my little town. And uh, his father was a patriot. And this just was the unforgivable sin. And I was reminded of how this guy, he, had to, uh, he, he went to Canada, but he would try to make contact with his family. It's, it's lonely out there by yourself. But his dad absolutely refused to have anything to do with him, totally cut him off. Now, I'm not here to say what, who's right or wrong in this, but the consequences of that, that place of total alienation, no hope of restoration, he forbid, him, he forbid his whole family to associate with this son. Uh, that son continued to wander, was homeless, and, of course, this was the era of the drugs, and he died a few, a few years later. And I think that a lot of that has to do when he made many attempts just to to hear some word of affirmation, seeking forgiveness and never found it. That does something to a heart. You know what? When we sin, it hurts and it does something to a heart. But when we're stuck in that, it also does something to a heart. And as people of God, we have to grasp and wrap our minds around God forgives sin. He, he doesn't, he, he's not permissive. He, he deals with it. He never sweeps it under the carpet. It is paid for under his 
fierce wrath that is put on his son, Jesus Christ. Paul is urging forgiveness. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to forgive somebody. Isn't that clever? One commentator, D.E. Garland, says, True forgiveness neither excuses the sin nor ignores what happened. It means that you will still relate to that person in spite of what happened, but also in light of what happened. Now, forgiveness, however, does not require that the church reinstate the person into a position of authority or whatever uh, it was, again, but does require his reinstatement into their fellowship. So there's, there's warmth there. There's comfort. There's a, a place. Don't you want to know that you have a place in this world if nobody else accepts you? God. When we come clean before him and acknowledge who he is, the thing our hearts have always longed for, there is a place for the most vilest of sinners. And scripture is filled with examples of that. And it's an incredible thing and we get to live in it. And benefit from the mercy of God. And as a reflection, as the image of God, the church, there's, there, there need, we have to find this, this place of safety for those who have been alienated. We've got to wrestle with this without making light of sin and not, yet not being too rigid. It's Christian community. Paul says in Colossians three twelve through 14, a very familiar passage, Speaking again to those who have redeemed, been redeemed as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in unity. So it can't be cheap grace. Things that are real have to be dealt with. It has to be real grace. Genuine repentance. Genuine grace. Don't be, make too light of it. Don't be too harsh with it. Scholar Kent Hughes says, no, It's no less a scandal to ban a penitent sinner forever from the redeemed and reconciled community as it is to wink at flagrant wickedness. John Calvin says severity is required in order that wicked men may not be made more bold by being allowed to go unpunished, for this is rightly said to be an enticement to sin. But on the other hand, there is a danger that a man who is disciplined will fall into despair so that the church must practice moderation and be ready to pardon anyone as soon as it is sure that he has sincerely repented. So Paul has addressed the sinner, and guess who he's addressing now? The church, his church family. And he even says, I'm testing you. Ooh, have you ever felt like God was testing you as a member of New Covenant Fellowship in how you're going to deal with something that happened in the church? Maybe you've been offended. Uh, family feuds can happen within churches. Grudges can be, can be kept in a lock, in a safe, and, 
and refuse. We refuse to give it up. And there's tension, even within a church. Paul says, I'm testing. I might test you. Know know, uh, whether you're obedient in this matter that is clearly written up in Holy Scripture. I'm testing your character, testing your spiritual metal, your obedience. Therefore, you have to take, Paul's saying, you've got to take personal responsibility. Where are you going to land individually with this? You have a choice as well. One scholar says, by submitting to their judgment, Paul places the burden of responsibility squarely on them, whatever they decide. Paul always wants to stimulate his congregation to grow in Christian maturity, and he is pleased because they have accepted responsibility in this matter. I think of the prodigal son, the real popular passage there. You know, he just blew it. He blew his inheritance. He had this loving home, a safe place, pure acceptance. And he decided he was going to do his own way, brought shame to himself, brought shame to his family. But if you were the pro- but then he came to his senses. That means that's true repentance. The Bible's way of saying he got it. He felt the pain of his sin. He wanted back in. Now, if you were that prodigal, and you're coming back home after you came to your senses. Would you want to run? Who would you want to meet? The father or the self-righteous brother? He meets his father with open arms. The self-righteous brother was still cold. He still had issues. He needed to wrestle with grace and truth. What is sin? How do you deal with it? But God asks us to judge ourselves, not forgive too easily, not take things too harshly. And then lastly, if that wasn't difficult enough, there's another thing to keep in mind as we wrestle with sin and as we wrestle with our relationships in this church or at home. And that is there's another force at work, not just the evil of our own hearts, but the prowess of Satan. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. You mean Satan has designs and strategies over such a thing as an offense within a church or between a brother and sister at home? Or between parents and and children? Satan has a strategy. He has an aim and a goal in mind and a result as well. He does. And as believers, we cannot be, Paul says, ignorant of the forces that are at work here. Of temptation. He's got a plan. So what do we need to to know in order not to be ignorant or in order not to be outwitted by this? Well, Satan appeals to the flesh. If if there are, are harsh judgments and attitudes that have not been dealt with, have not been sanctified... This is an opportunity where Satan will take and he will work in each of our hearts with all of our weaknesses to try to get us to go to one side or another. So the the sin nature needs to be destroyed so that, as Paul says in the first book of Corinthians, his spirit is saved on the day of the Lord. Now, Satan is used in God's kingdom. And you will recall these statements that say, Paul will say, we just need to put him in the hands of Satan. We need to deliver him to Satan. Now, that sounds scary. 
How does the church or the apostle deliver somebody to Satan? Well, it's basically removing them from the safety, the care, the warmth of the forgiving church community who bear with one another, support one another, and you're putting him back out into the world from whence he came. The, the, rust, the roughness, the unnecessary roughness, the meanness, the, 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 the people pushing others down to get on top. And the idea is that a, a sinner who loves his sin more than God will finally get it and say, Whoa, this is, this is not the way to go in life. I really liked it over here. And that person will repent and come back to the church. In the early day, now I don't, we do not have, in my opinion, our culture does not have a highest, a high view of church. It's kind of optional. It's like, you know, just maybe I'll get involved, maybe I won't. Back in this, the first century, church was everything. They, these people literally pictured themselves as being delivered from darkness and put into the light. They clung together. They valued each other. They, they believed that when they gathered like this, there were spiritual powers present protecting them from the wiles of the enemy. Like they took it very serious. And so the idea of being... Can you imagine being kicked out of your family? Like if on the way home, dad just opens the car door and says, uh, son number two, you're on your own. What do you mean I'm on your own? You're on your own. You're no longer welcome at home. But, I, but I'm hungry for lunch. Yeah. Here, here's a nickel. I mean, it's, it sounds ridiculous. But no more the warmth, no more mom's hugs, no more games, no more TV, whatever it is, that, that popcorn, whatever that makes home so special. You're out. And that's how the early church looked at this. It was a terrifying thing. And they loved the church. They loved knowing that, that, that God really did keep themselves them safe, that he really did work in all of the challenges and the suffering and the trials that they had to go through. The presence of Christ was real. And they knew that Satan had powers and that they could be outwitted. And that word outwitted means robbed. And that's where Satan will take, if somebody's too cold, he'll rob the church of a soul, so to speak. Here's one soul that could have been redeemed. And now because of the coldness of, of leaders, perhaps, or the church members, or in relation to a family, one of the family members, or dad. Don't, dads, don't exasperate your children. Don't make it impossible for them. So Satan can use the, the tendency to be too permissive, to embolden sin, and he can use the tendency to be too harsh so that people can't find their way back to the church and to Christ. Just make it way too difficult. Satan will exploit our weaknesses and our sins. With opportunities like this. We have to keep short accounts. We want to be careful of our grudges. Especially unresolved grudges. If that kind of stuff is happening in our church. Then we're vulnerable. Perhaps even being outwitted. The devil hates forgiveness. The devil hates restoration. He's all about maiming, killing, destroying any kind of relationship. That we will allow him 
to get in. He, he likes the despair and the darkness and the no way out kind of thinking. But let me just close with this quote from Simon Kistemacher. This passage reveals how important it is for the Christian community to balance the exercise of firm discipline with compassionate charity toward those who repent. Failure to do either plays into the hands of Satan. In this passage, Paul reveals that showing forgiveness is one way for the church to close the door on Satan's evil designs to destroy it. Satan's realm is one where immorality, the thirst for revenge, ruthlessness, heartlessness, and deadly rancor hold sway. Those who are in Christ have received God's free pardon, and they are transferred into a realm where faith, hope, love, and tender mercies rule. Satan is powerless before a united community filled with love and humble forgiveness. That's a powerful statement. And I pray by God's grace that we are or will be that kind of community. We need to be that kind of community in the world and the culture that we live in. And this kind of balance plays a a crucial part in our church life together. It plays a crucial part in how we exalt God, how we edify the saints, and how we evangelize the lost. It plays a crucial part in our understanding of studying this book and how we are ministers of reconciliation from Christ to God. And it's our great privilege to sit under God's Word and to build our lives, our marriages, our families, our church on the rock. May God bless the preaching of His Word.